WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and welcome to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper here with City Pulse managing editor Andy Belaskovitz. Later in the show, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the play Angels in America, Tony Kushner, will uh, join us uh, for an interview he did with Alan Ross of City Pulse. Kushner is uh, going to appear at Michigan State in uh, two Mondays from now. And uh, also the audio from our TV show, City Pulse Newsmakers, with uh, retired Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel, who is chairing the Community Review Board looking into the Lansing Board of Water and Lights uh, performance during the December 21st, 22nd ice storm. We'll also talk to uh, State Representative Mike Calton about how Republicans seem to be lining up to uh, sponsor legislation uh, that passed the House uh, to uh, bring back uh, dispensaries in the uh, state of Michigan for medical marijuana. First up, though, is the president of the Historical Society of Greater Lansing, which is going to uh, uh, open another pop-up exhibit, a very interesting one we feature on our cover this week, Six Votes That Changed Lansing. And on the phone with us right now is Valerie Martin. Valerie, welcome back to the show. It, well, it's a pleasure to have you. A very interesting exhibit. Uh, I have to uh, say I absolutely loved the painting of City Hall uh, that we featured in, in the paper today. Uh, a, a, you know, if people don't get the message about saving these 50 buildings, it really would be a shame because City Hall is a prime example of that, isn't it? It is. It is a great example of mid-century modern architecture designed by a local architect, Ken Black, who was responsible for many different buildings downtown Lansing. And, of course, right across from the Capitol building, it's really at the heart and center of the city. Uh, when I saw the painting for the first time myself, I was just blown away by the color of it and how vivid it is. I think it, it captures that period very nicely. And I was so intrigued to hear that the person who painted it was a woman, um, there were not a lot of women working in architecture at the time. And as a result, actually, of how aware she was of her sex, um, she would not sign it with her own name. She used the nom de plume for all of the architectural renderings she did. But it's just a, a wonderful image. Yeah, interesting nom de plume, too. Barden Durst. I don't know if I would know. I, I mean, certainly you wouldn't know what sex that was from, right. from the name. And it, that was taken from her name. Her name was Dorothy Durst Barden. And so she removed the Dorothy, uh, inverted the, the two names, and uh, very gender neutral. Well, tell us how that building is representative of what this exhibit is about. Sure. The exhibit shows the impact that local politics and voting has had on our city. It came about initially because we were researching things like City Hall for our downtown tours. 
we were researching the history of the Carnegie Library, and it very quickly became apparent that a lot of these landmarks are really the result of local votes. Some are the, the population themselves going to vote. For example, in 1902, uh, registered voters in Lansing went to the polls to decide if they were willing to fund a public library at $3,500 a year. This was a condition to get a Carnegie library that would actually be worth $35,000. Hmm. Um, other things like City Hall, voters did not vote for that building directly, but they did vote for Ralph Crago, who was our mayor at the time. He was mayor for 17 years. And, of course, when we vote for an elected official, be it the mayor, be it a council person, we are giving them the power of our vote and we are giving them our approval to then go forward with their own plans. And Crago was a big supporter of urban renewal, which was very controversial then as it is today. He built City Hall. He built several new fire stations. He built the Civic Center that many people remember. And these became uh, iconic sites in Lansing. And had he never been elected mayor, you know, would those projects have come to fruition? We don't know. Other mayors had tried to replace the old city hall at that point. No one had ever been successful, but Crago was able to do it. Well, that's a mixed blessing, though, isn't it? Because I've seen uh, postcards of that old city hall. What an amazing building. It was a a wonderful building. It was uh, rusticated sandstone. Um, It had grown to encompass the old post office that had been directly behind it which was now called the City Hall Annex. And there was a brief period of time where actually both buildings coexisted. The old City Hall, just in front of the current building where the open plaza is today, it came down. It was very much a victim of urban renewal and of uh, changing uh, architectural styles. But at the same time, it's the building we have. So it's still worth discussing regardless. Right, of well, of course. <laughs> and appropriately enough, this exhibit is going to be in uh, City Hall. We are thrilled to be working with the city and to have this opportunity. Um, our exhibits are pop-ups, meaning they're temporary. This exhibit will be up through the end of April, and it is right in, in City Hall atrium, so anyone can go in and see it at any time that City Hall is open, which we're just thrilled to have that opportunity because it really allows the exhibit to be open to a much broader audience than what we've been able to offer in the past. Uh, and tell us what uh, the other elements are. And we, we only we have less than two minutes, so definitely mm-hmm. tell me about the Morlack Quad. Sure. There's the vote to make Lansing the capital that happened in 1847. There's the series of votes to create the River Trail starting in the 70s. There's the vote to elect Crago. There is the vote for the library. And then there's the vote for Carl Morlock. He was the father of the Morlock Quad. The first identical quadruplets to survive were born at Sparrow Hospital on May 31st of 1930. Their father was unemployed at the time, so the mayor gave him a job with the city as constable, and then he ran for re-election the next year, and his election card has his picture and his name, and then pictures of all four baby girls on it. So constable probably was something like police chief. Yes, yes. He would have worked with the court, and Mm. um, it would have been a, a security position. You're correct. Yeah, well, and there's a wonderful uh, campaign card, I guess, of him and the four, the four kids. Yes. And if I recall correctly, they were named for. Remind me what they were named for. Sure. They their initials, their middle initials were their birth order. So A, B, C, and D is what they were called by the doctor who delivered them. They then had a citywide naming contest through the state journal to name the girls because the parents had no idea they were going to have four daughters. And the names they chose were Edna, 
uh, Helen, Sarah, no, excuse me, Edna, Sarah, I'm doing these in the wrong order, <laughs> uh, Wilma and Helen. The, the initials, when placed in the correct order, are for Edward W. Sparrow Hospital. Oh, very good. Well, uh, again, the exhibit is, at, is uh, going to be at the Lansing City Hall. It opens Monday, 5 to 7 p.m., it's this Monday, February 3rd, and then it continues through April 30th. And there are guided tours Wednesdays at noon. Yes. And you can get information at info at lansinghistory.org or by calling 282-0671. Valerie, uh, thank you so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you. All right. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz here with Andy Belaskovitz, and uh, we will be uh, joined momentarily by our next guest. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz here with uh, Andy Belaskovitz. On the phone with us now is the state representative who uh, had this crazy idea of a dispensary bill. And uh, lo and behold, he got it through the State House of Representatives, Mike Calton. He's on the phone with us uh, right now. Mike Calton is, of all things, a Republican. Welcome to uh, City Pulse, Mike. Hi. Hi. Appreciate having you with us. And I I mentioned that you're a Republican because, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was kind of a crazy thing for a Republican to take the lead on something that could be interpreted as pro-medical marijuana. Uh, and but you got your bill through the state house. Tell us, tell us what this bill would do if it indeed gets through the Senate as well. What it would do, it would create what's called provisioning centers in the law. Um, and what I mean by that is the, the present Michigan Medical Marijuana Act only allows you to do two things: uh, a grow your own if a doctor gives you a recommendation, or b contract with a caregiver to grow it for you, and he can only grow for five people. So you've had dispensaries out there, a lot of them have closed, and they really didn't have uh, a strong foothold in the law. And with the McQueen ruling, where patient-to-patient transfer was not valid, suddenly uh, they all were at risk. And so to have, say, a box store that's in a commercial or industrial area, we need legislation. All right. I'm going to turn things over to Andy Belaskovitz. Yeah, uh, Representative, how would uh, does does your bill address how the provisioning centers would get uh, the medical marijuana? The provi- the provisioning centers get the medical marijuana by buying the overage of caregivers. Uh, for instance, caregivers can take care of up to five people in themselves. That's twelve plants apiece. That's seventy two plants. And the way things work out, um, that can be a lot of medicine, and they can at times have too much medicine that would have to be destroyed or brought to the police station. Uh, this gives them an opportunity then to sell it to the provisioning center. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, be- before we get into sort of how uh, you managed to get so much support from your uh, Republican colleagues on this bill, um, uh, one advocate who worked, who's worked closely with you from the National Patient Rights Association, who's, who's supportive of this bill, 
um, said that she doesn't think it's really all that controversial and that there's actually quite a few rules put in place to regulate what goes on. What are some of the, I guess, uh, rules or regulations that people who want to open a provisioning center are going to have to uh, abide by? Well, first of all, they've got to meet with their locality because it does give local control. Uh, For instance, Ann Arbor wants to have provisioning centers, and they want so many. And under this bill, they have control uh, of whether they have them or how many. Now, another community that may be, you know, real conservative may not want a provisioning center. And so there's local control. So that's step one. Step two, uh, once you had a provisioning center, it has a limitation on if felons can be involved. If you've had uh, that type of felony in the last 10 years, you cannot be involved. Then also it provides for the safety testing of the medicine. And what I mean by safety, having to do with mold, mildew, fungus, and pesticides, these are safety issues. Um, But it does not make some of the qualitative issues uh, mandatory testing, like the percentage of different cannabinoids in THC. Mm-hmm. So those are probably the three main elements is local control, limitation of felons, and, and safety testing. Mm-hmm. Now, we uh, there there still are some dispensaries open across the state. Uh, is, is there any uh, part of your bill that sort of grandfathers them in, or are they going to have to start from scratch? What we did with them is... You know, it is local control, but since they're already open, uh, we made it so that they didn't have to apply to the locality and now ask them since they're already open. We put the burden on the loca- on the municipality, uh, the locality, to actually kind of bring action against them to eliminate them. So that they would actually have to get active, the municipality. Otherwise, if nothing is done, then they're allowed. Mm-hmm. And um, if uh, for communities that either allow them or uh, or don't allow them, I guess what what are the what are, what would be the penalties if there's one operating either uh, well without the graces of their local municipality? Well, then they have no protection. Uh huh. So would they be uh, would they, they, they be facing could, they criminal? Could, uh, the, police, the, the local police, the county police, the state police could then come in and and. Uh, do what they do to some of them now, basically. Um, close it, confiscate uh, product that's there. And the people who ran that dispensary you know, would be subject to criminal charges. Okay. Well, uh, to sort of get at the, the heart of this story, the, what you had told me earlier uh, this week is that when you first introduced this bill, it was like pulling teeth to get someone to even co-sponsor it with you and fast forward about a year and you said people were climbing over seats to get on board with this um you ended up in december uh just about a month ago uh with 87 percent of the house of representatives backing this bill uh what what happened um in that time from when you first introduced it till till the seeming momentum it has now I think there was a cultural change within the house of representatives and a lot of it had to do with having time to study the issue, basically, um, like Robin Snyder and Kevin McKenney, uh, were doing the lobbying and meeting with all of them, explaining the bill. I was meeting with people, explaining the bill. We we got a lot of patience. Not, and I don't mean patience 
I mean, um, marijuana, medical marijuana patients. A lot of them got to meet medical marijuana patients, children with epilepsy, people with cancer who was helping their appetite, and um, really reframed the issue. Because at first, people were still thinking recreational, and they're thinking about people who are actually recreational smokers using the law as a crack in the door so they could smoke legally. But really, at the end, the focus was on patients and taking care of people. And as time went on, there was quite a paradigm shift in the way the legislature looked at this issue. And something that I had mentioned to you, one legislator said he wanted to be a co-sponsor in this bill because he wanted to be on the right side of history. And, you know, I put a lot of thought into that. He wanted to be on the right side of history, and I thought about it. And, you know, would you want to be that legislator that, like, was trying to keep slavery or the legislator that didn't want to give women the right to vote? Uh, Those people, and they did exist, were on the wrong side of history. So... In this case, this legislator wanted to be a sponsor so that he could be on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Representative, we have uh, just about a minute left. Um, How optimistic are you uh, that the Senate will approve this bill and send it to the governor? I'm extremely optimistic. This comes, these two bills come out of the House of Representatives with 87% of the vote and the other one 92% of the vote. That is tremendous momentum going into the Senate. Do you think they're uh, they're also being influenced by the legalization movement? I think that's true to some extent because the reason they had a referendum, the Michigan Medical Medical Marijuana Act, was because the legislature failed to act. And now I think they see if they fail to act, it's going to bring on a legalization referendum. All right, very good. Well, we're out of time, but thank you, and uh, congratulations and best wishes to you in the Senate. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Representative Mike Colton, a Republican from Nashville. My, how things have changed. You know, remember, Andy, you wanted to go follow him around in Nashville, and he he really didn't want you to because he didn't really want uh, his constituents to know what he was up to. That's right. And uh, here he is now bragging about it. Well, very good. You're listening to City Pulse here on the Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure on From Monday on uh, February 10th, uh, one of the biggest uh, people in American theater will be at the Wharton Center as part of its uh, 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 Worldview Lecture Series, Tony Kushner. He wrote the play Angels in America, a two-part play that uh, was uh, one of a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, There was just an amazing uh, production of it on HBO and, uh, and but he's written some other things. He he uh, co-wrote uh, Munich and uh, uh, and uh, Lincoln, uh, and he was nominated for Academy Awards for both of them. Uh, Alan Ross uh, interviewed him recently for a story that's in this week's City Pulse, and we're going to play you an excerpt of that right now. You've done plays, uh, books, movies, essays. You did an opera. How do you decide what medium a particular story is going to uh, be in once you decide you want to tell that story? Well, I mean, I think that there are uh, 
Um, I mean, first of all, it's only really two media that I consider myself. Um, um, plays, I think, still come first for me. Um, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons why something might suggest itself as a better uh, subject for uh, theater or a better subject for film and TV. One of the things that I think would be a determining factor is uh, how much autonomy I think I want in addressing a subject. It's something that I want to be able to write about without uh, collaborators, um, or at least without a boss, without somebody who's going to be able to say, uh, you know, change this or don't change that. But I would probably write a play, because when I write a play, I own the words, and no one can change anything without my permission. If I work on a film for Steven Spielberg, or I work on a television series for HBO, uh, you know, the, the, I'm an employee, um, and, uh, and, and that material can get changed. Also, I'm working for a medium uh, film or television, more film than TV, but these are media that traditionally, um, especially some of more directors media, and um, then uh, theater is, where the, the play, you know, as they say, is the thing. And, yeah. uh, so that would be one consideration. The other is you know, it's something I uh, want to write about requires armies of people and, you know, huge scenes and a kind of gigantic spectacle. It's possible that that's something in theater and something to try and, you know, I always like to try and push what, what I think theater is capable of doing, but there are some things that are just, uh, you know, have a size to them that uh, makes them perhaps more suitable for uh, film or television. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, ultimately, it still feels to me that this is the case, that when you're working in theater, you have a certain kind of uh, permission, the form sort of insisted away that you focus very intensively on uh, the dialectics of the thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of an embodied argument. Um, when you're working in film, I found at any rate, that you're much more focused on narrative. Uh, it's not, you know, there is always a, an issue of dialectics and contradiction. I mean, drama is, uh, you know, combat, conflict, contradiction. But when, when you're working on something, uh, how do you know when a piece is done? Um, I don't actually have too much trouble with that, I don't think. I mean, I might, you know, it might be the case that I'm kidding myself and that I continue to work on pieces after they're done and I ruin them. Poets write about this, that they revisit a poem years later and sometimes they'll pick at it and change it and, and alter things. Um, and I think probably novelists want to. Sometimes I think they do, but maybe more often not. Um, uh, with a play, you know, every time you have a new production that you're involved in, you have a new chance to hear it, and the world has changed around you, and you have a new cast, and you're a different person. And sometimes you think, oh, I should have done this, or I should have done that. I mean, uh, there are plays of mine that I don't. You know, I made tiny changes to the first part of Anything Like I cut one joke out of the first part. Um, I did much more extensive work on the second part. I'm sure that if in another 20 years I revisited the second part of Angels, I'd still probably want to play around with it. I, I think there are some plays that just feel finished and uh, some plays that are, aren't. I mean, I think that the 
all the different component parts of some plays kind of fall into place and match up with one another. Um, and that, that's nice when that happens. And then there are plays that, that are always going to be a little sort of like wonky and sloppy, and they give you a chance to move the pieces around because they don't lock into place as, as efficiently. And uh, you kind of get a feeling of it. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I made one final change years ago to the first part of the Angels when, it was, when I was first working on it. I fixed one scene, and then the whole thing just sort of clicked into place, and I, I've never felt any impulse to uh, change it. There are a couple of other things that I've written that I feel that way about. And then other things that I've written, I think, well, you know, probably always when I go back to these things, I'll hear something slightly differently, and I'll have an impulse, whether I follow it or not, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of uh, alter it. I mean, you know, there's, there's a great tra- tradition of this. There are four versions, at least, of Hamlet. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that it's probably because the, uh, a script of a play is a... Is something to read, but it's also a kind of a performance score, and so it has a kind of an odd relationship to its literary self. Um, and it's always possible to to go back in and, and transform. I know that you spent a great deal of time uh, researching Abraham Lincoln for uh, for the Lincoln screenplay. In fact, I heard that you even you read a book that just just about his physical body. I did. There is a book, I think, called Lincoln's, a big fat book called Lincoln's Body, and it's just a gathering of all the physical evidence that we have about. Is there anybody else that you'd want to do that for, to, to know that much information about them? That's a good question. I, I think you're, you're right. I don't think there's any other human being, I mean, apart from, like, you know, my siblings or my husband, uh, or, you know, people that I actually know, certainly no historical figure about whom I know tense as much as I know about Lincoln. There are some people, maybe the only other person that I know as much about is Bertolt Brecht, uh, who's a, you know, the German playwright who is somebody that I admire immensely. There are a few poets, uh, William Blake, uh, John Keats, um, maybe Walt Whitman that I know a great deal about. Uh, um, I certainly know a lot about Verdi and Mozart, but nobody that I've examined as exhaustively as Lincoln. There are very few people that ever lived about whom there's this. I mean, Doris Kirkman claims that uh, he's number three uh, uh, in a list of uh, human beings that have been uh, written about the most. Uh, I think uh, Jesus and Shakespeare are one and two. I'd love to know much, much more about Shakespeare. Um, Jewish, so, you know, I'm very interested in Jesus, but I, I don't know that I have an enormous... I mean, I, I've got a lot about Jesus, actually. But, I mean, uh, you know, there's a limited amount of historical information about him. Uh, uh, there's, there's more, but still a limited amount of information about Shakespeare. Just... What, what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm working on a new screenplay for Stephen. I can't really say what it's about. <laughs> it's not Robo-Apocalypse, is it? No, no, no. I, I, he didn't ask me to work in Robo Apocalypse, which is just didn't work as far. Because um, uh, I don't know that I'd be any good at that. I, um, it's another uh, it's a historical thing, and uh, it's something that he and I have talked about working on for quite a while. We talked about it before we uh, started working on Lincoln, actually. And uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through the first draft. It's not going to take years like Lincoln did. 
I'm working on the second half of an opera with the composer Janine Cazori, with whom I wrote, uh, Caroline, or Change, and uh, it's an opera about the death of Eugene O'Neill, and it's for the Metropolitan Opera. And uh, I'm working on a couple of things that I hope might turn into plays, I don't know, and I'm working on an HBO series. Um, so I'm, that's sort of what I'm doing right now. What are you going to talk about at the uh, when you come to the Wharton Center? I answer questions, so I talk about um, whatever I get asked. I, you know, I always found when I gave lectures that, that the Q and A part of it was my favorite part, and the part that the audience seemed to enjoy the most. And so I decided to make that the uh, whole ball of wax. What would you like your legacy to be? Uh, I try not to about that very much because I think it's a sure way of guaranteeing that you don't have a legacy. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that some of the stuff that I've written uh, and worked on will uh, endure. Um, uh, but, you know, if it does endure, it's because it has, uh, it gets at some kind of truth that, you know, doesn't fade in five minutes or in five years, but, you know, still speaks to people, and, uh, and so my only job in terms of my legacy is to just do what I'm supposed to do, legacy or not, which is to try and figure out ways to get it some version of, uh, of what seems to me to be true, and to find an entertaining way to share it with an audience, and, uh, and if I succeed in doing that, then I think I have some reason to hope that some people will continue to read my stuff after I'm gone. You married your husband in, in 2008, um, but you're coming to state, to Michigan, uh, where gay marriage still isn't legal. Uh, what, what message would you like to give uh, to the lawmakers here about why it should be legal? And Any message to the, to the gay people here that are still holding out hope? Uh, well, I mean, there's something the gay people in Michigan, they have a great reason to hope. I mean, I think that, you know, it's disappointing that uh, places like Michigan are still uh, behind the times, but, you know, the, the, the trend at this point, even you know, more than the trend, the, the movement uh, to make gay marriage legal throughout the United States is, is so unmistakable and um, absolutely unstoppable and irreversible that it seems to me to be almost um, uh, mischievous, if not to say, you know, downright, you know, um, uh, wicked to continue to withhold rights um, in, in uh, you know, uh, on a state-by-state -state basis when, you know, it's really only a matter of time until, you know, this recognition, which is now, you know, absolutely uh, beyond question, uh, being extended to the LGBT community uh, becomes a, a national um, uh, fact. I, why why make a few people in, in, in a few states suffer um, something uh, a little bit longer uh, just to score political points or to shore up your base? You know, I would hope that political leaders now, I mean, some people are really crazy and still hang on to what is absolutely, I think, uh, becoming clear to everybody else uh, that, that, you know, opposition to gay marriage is a form of, of 
bigotry and prejudice that's no more appetizing or acceptable than racism or anti-Semitism. And uh, so, you know, for most people know that, and some people feel that they need to pretend otherwise because they aren't sure that their uh, electorate will continue to elect them. And to those people, I'd like to say, you know, lead and, uh, you know, help, help make progress rather than, you know, spend the rest of your political life running to catch up with it so you don't, you know, go down in the history books as a, you know, troglodyte. You're listening to Impact Exposure. was our interview with uh, Tony Kushner. Again, he'll be at the Wharton Center uh, at 7.30 p.m. Monday, February 10th. You can get more information in today's City Pulse. You're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz here with Andy Belaskovitz. Now, uh, we, had, uh, we sat down with uh, the re- retired Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel, who uh, Mayor Verge Bernero selected to, uh, uh, to uh, chair the Community Review Committee re- looking at the Lansing Board of Water and Lights performance during the December 21st, 22nd, uh, uh, during and after the December 21st, 22nd ice storm. Uh, uh, BWL has caught a lot of flack for uh, its uh, performance and uh, the mayor uh, heeded the wishes of the public for an independent review of uh, of that performance. And uh, uh, General McDaniel sat down with us uh, for our TV show last week, and we have the audio of that for you right now. This is City Pulse Newsmakers, a weekly look at the issues and the people behind them in Greater Lansing. Brought to you by City Pulse, Lansing's weekly alternative newspaper. And now, here's your host, editor and publisher, Burl Schwartz. Good morning. The committee that's charged with reviewing the response of the Lansing Board of Water and Light to the December ice storm has begun its work, and we'll find out more about that today from the chairman, Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel. General, welcome to the program. Thank you, Burl. It's great to be here. And with me is Mickey Hurton, Editorial Director of City Pulse. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Uh, General, let's start with uh, why Virch Bernero selected you or picked on you for this job. Uh, do you know the mayor well, or how did he uh, arrive at you? I, you know, I never said why me when when uh, when he maybe, called maybe me up. Maybe you should have. But perhaps <laughs> I should have, but I didn't. I had known the mayor before when he was state senator, and I was Homeland Security Advisor. You know, Lansing's not that big a town. We went to the same church for a period of time. Our kids went to the same school for a period of time, uh, but I hadn't talked to him in years. So uh, somewhat surprised when he called me. Uh, I, of course, had to think about it for a period of time. Uh, I'm still teaching full-time at Cooley Law School. I had to talk to the dean of the law school and make sure that this uh, was consistent with, uh, with all that I'm doing there. Uh, they're very, very strong in public service and pro bono work at, at uh, the law school. So Dean LeDuc says, yep, no problem. Uh, of course, I had to talk to my wife about it. And, and the, re- the one reflection that I had was that I had done this at the federal level, I'd done it at the state level, and maybe it was time for me to do the same thing at the community level and give back to the local community. 
And when you say you, you've done this, what, what part of what you did do you think complies to this? Uh, specifically, I intended to say homeland security and emergency management planning or the review of those plans. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's why the mayor turned to you? I assume so, yes. Okay. Yes. And uh, one of the things that uh, some people have wondered about is your friendship with Peter Lark. You were quoted yeah. in the State Journal as saying, you're friends and I believe you work together in the Attorney right. General's office. Uh, why should they trust that friendship yeah. will not uh, be a factor in the eventual outcome of this review? Well, first of all, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been in the military for 28 years. Uh, I am certainly not going to sully my reputation by protecting someone else, no matter who that was. And perhaps I shouldn't have said friendship. Maybe I should have said colleague or acquaintance. But, you know, we had a very close working relationship across the attorney general's office. And I heard from a number of individuals that used to work there and, and, and asked to be, uh, you know, on the committee. Uh, and because of that concern, of course, I didn't, I didn't include any of them. So we had a close relationship, uh, you know, a sense of collegiality across the attorney general's office. So that's why I called him a friend. I've never been to his house. He's never been to mine. Last time I saw him was last October uh, at the, there was the, the pedestrian bridge dedication of Frank J. Kelly, and we both attended that. And I said, hi, how are things going at that point? But, you know, perhaps friend was too strong. Everybody seized on that word. I would have thought the opposite, frankly, Burl. I would have thought the word friend had been devalued in this day and age with <laughs> thousands of friends on social media. But apparently everybody seized on the fact that I said that as opposed to the fact that I said that this would be independent and objective and that no one gets a pass, including Peter Lark, the general manager. All right, Peter. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mickey. <laughs> I have a question. I mean, you, you've looked at lots of emergency plans from what you say. How difficult is it to develop a good emergency plan? That's a great question. It's easy to develop an emergency plan. It is difficult to, to develop a really good one. A really good plan is not organization-based. A really good one is community-based. Mm -hmm. And I have a sense, I haven't seen anything yet, but I have a sense this one was not really community-based. By that I mean it's got to be, if you'll pardon the expression, both vertically and horizontally integration. Mm -hmm. on, on the horizontal level, uh, it's not just the Board of Water and Light internally. I mean, that, that works at a tactical level. This person goes there. But that's not a strategic plan or an operational plan yeah. for, for decision-making when you have an event and everything goes bad when, when, when you have an event. You can't cover every eventualities. So a good plan uh, has those relationships, those arrangements, whether it's communication or other forms, not only internally, but, but, but vertically with, say, in this case would be police, fire, other first responders. Uh, it would be horizontally up to the city, the county, perhaps even the state. Uh, it would include non-governmental organizations like the Red Cross. I don't know if any of that was included in this. Have you seen their emergency plan? I haven't yet. I because have. I think you've nailed it exactly. It, yeah. It's very operational. Right. But limited, I mean, at least from my reading, in that, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't talk, it doesn't give you flexibility to deal with the nuances and, and difference. It's, it's probably like, won't they say about war? Yeah. You know, the plans are great till it starts, yeah. then all bets are off, and it, it right. never goes as planned. Right. That's exactly right. We always say it never survives first contact, and that's why your plan has to be at a strategic level. So one of the key points, I think, that everybody focuses on when they talk about the leadership is really, did the plan include a strategic decision-making platform for the senior leadership? Did they have true situational awareness? 
I don't know from what I've seen, and again, this is speculation only, uh, I'm waiting until we get the documents specifically from Board of Water and Light, but they've got to have situational awareness, and I don't know that they had the ability to say, here's what's happening on our distribution grid all at one time, and to get that information back to the senior decision makers. And by that I mean, in an emergency, your operations, your day-to-day -day operations manager is not usually your emergency manager. It's usually uh, you remove a few steps in the, ch in the chain of command between the senior leader and the operations manager. You've got to condense that, that, that uh, the time to bang from decision to the actual explosion, as we say in the military, time to bang. So the idea is from the time that a decision is made from the senior leader until it's executed, that has to be compressed much more than you see in normal operations. So those are some of the issues that I, I'm looking for when we look at, the, look at their plans. Uh, General, uh, the defense of Peter Lark's trip to New York seems to be what difference would it have made if he was here. Uh, you're a general. What difference does it make if the general is uh, involved or not? Uh, well, it does make a difference. Uh, no way around it. Uh, when we talk about this at the Army War College or, you know, when they, they talk about uh, senior leadership in crisis, uh, the one thing that is absolutely clear, and I think it translates to the civilian environment, is uh, the public has to know. I mean, there's, you, you see this ever since the first Gulf War. I mean, you guys remember Norm Schwarzkopf for one reason. Why? He was there mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. So the public has to know who is there, has to know who's in charge, and has to know what they're going to do. Uh, that's, that's, in every crisis, that's, that's the case. I don't know that there's any, any way around that, frankly. Uh, the other thing I hear around town is that a year from now, nobody's even going to be thinking about this. How serious is, was this episode, in your opinion? I think it was pretty serious, obviously, or I wouldn't have gotten involved. I mean, uh, this is a 40% outage, uh, so 40% of your operation is ground to a halt. Uh, and, and by that I mean that your objective is uh, the minute that switch is flipped that, that your customer has power. So if that's your ultimate objective, 40% of that is lost. Uh, and the, the uh, period of time for which it was lost. Uh, uh, and then thirdly, I think, is the lack of ability to communicate that plan, uh, whatever that plan was, to your customer. And the customer here is the ultimate stakeholder, I think, for the Board of Water and Light. So. Uh, I think it's pretty important. Uh, one of the things that I will say in terms of review of this is we can't look just at the next ice storm. I mean, if, if in fact that we have such an incredible heat wave this summer that we have an inability uh, uh, to generate power, so the, the issue is generation rather than distribution of power, the public's not going to know that. They're only going to know that here's another failing by Board of Water and Light. And again, I'm speculating. Uh, so I think that this has to be a holistic review. I think it has to start with planning and preparation. That is what they've done in the last couple of years to develop that plan that we just talked about, Mickey, but also to train their staff on that plan and then exercise that plan. Then there's the response itself, and then there's the long-term recovery. And long-term recovery is sort of has the element of mitigation to it. What are you doing to assure this doesn't happen again? It may be something... Uh, as mundane as a more robust tree trimming schedule uh, and maybe something as uh, perhaps expensive as burying certain lines. I don't know what that is, but I do know that all of those elements have to be considered. When I talked with the mayor about this two weeks ago, I insisted that we include 
that entire spectrum. Not that I wanted to take on a lot of work, but I think that we have to if we are going to assure that uh, that Board of Water and Light is going to get to a point, should they accept our recommendations, where they can uh, regain the trust and confidence of their stakeholders. But isn't that sort of essential? I mean, it would seem to me uh, disaster plans that I've been involved in sort of start with the gravest catastrophe. You know, we you talked about 40 percent. Mm -hmm. You could lose 100 mm percent. -hmm. You could lose all of your trucks. Your workforce could be decimated by an attack or an illness. Wouldn't most disaster planning start from the gravest threat and work incrementally towards less catastrophic events? I mean, 40% is fine, but it could have been 60. could have been 100. I mean, why, isn't that weird? Wouldn't you start with the where it could be the worst? Right. I, I wasn't suggesting, Mickey. I, the, the, the question from Burl was, would you consider this a, a serious incident? And certainly I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I just meant to convey that we don't only look at ice storms and this type of outage, but we've got to look at any natural disaster or man-made uh, event that could happen in the mid-Michigan area and affect Board of Water and Light's ability to do any of the three things, whether it's generation, transmission, or distribution. Mm -hmm. I was curious, do you think as part of your review, the role of the Board of Directors is something you should look at? I mean, they're the ultimately board of commissioners. The board of commissioners for the board of, uh, board of Water and Light. I mean, after all, they represent the people. They're appointed, and you've probably served on boards, and you know that you can be an activist and you can really help the management, or you've probably sat on boards as I have where it's sort of a rubber stamp and everybody just goes on their way. I'm just wondering if the role of the board needs to be reinforced and the message to the commissioners is, take this seriously. Well, I, 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 I don't want to speculate on exactly what our message will be, but I would think that when we look at this in terms of vertical integration, even though our report is being directed to the mayor, uh, it's certainly going to be shared with the commissioners of the Board of Water and Light, and I would assume the city council, and, and the mayor has specifically said the Public Service Commission as well. So I think, uh, that they will see this, and I think that one of the things that we have to look at in terms of vertical integration is, excuse me, not just the uh, decision making within the board itself, but their ability to rely upon other resources. And that means they have, you know, when, when we say senior leadership, I, I guess I wasn't thinking just the general manager and his internal staff, uh, to what degree do they, do they see as stakeholders they're representatives of the community. Sure. You know, I, I would think that there is a role for the commissioner during a, an, an event, even if it is to say to uh, the stakeholders in their, their ward, here's what we know from the Board of Water and Light. So mm -hmm. uh, I certainly think that there, that there is a two-way communication relationship there between the, the staff of the Board of Water and Light and the commissioners and between the commissioners and the citizens in their area. And that, of course, suggests another point, and that is, what about those individuals in East Lansing, Delta Township, Delhi, Lansing Township, wherever that are not represented? Uh, and so I think that's an issue you. as well. I think that's, yeah. Yeah, including myself, yeah. right. I mean, I, I tried to call and I never got through on the phone. When I called Border Water and Light, we had two trees on fire in our backyard. We had three or four lines down. Uh, we called 911 finally. The police came out. Uh, but we never did see BWNL until four days later. So uh, I think that's You're listening to Impact Exposure.
but I, I, I do recognize Broadcasting that that is, uh, from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. City Pulse here on the Impact. Let's get back to our interview with Brigadier General Michael C.H. McDaniel, head of the community review team of the Lansing Board of Water and Lights uh, performance during and after the December ice storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk, if we could, about the how the committee will operate. Uh, you, you decided to open your organizational meeting to the public, and you're holding some uh, public hearings, uh, right. and uh, but uh, you were also quoted as saying yeah. you're concerned about the uh, having the deliberative process open to the public. Uh, where do you stand on that now? Sure, let me let me try and clarify that. Uh, we're certainly not a public body. We're all volunteers. We're not being paid anything. We're an advisory group. We're not making public policy. Open Meetings Act clearly doesn't apply to us. Uh, and and uh, w- so when I made the quote about this being burdensome, I was referring to if you look at the requirements of the Open Meetings Act, you have to post the public meeting, you know, so many days in advance, and you've got to put it on your principal place of business. Well, we don't have any way to do that. We don't have a principal place of business. But we will and are using the Open Meetings Act as our guidelines, uh, and we will continue to do that. We had our first meeting this morning. It was open. You had a representative there from from City Pulse. Andy was there and asked me questions afterwards. And we'll continue to do that. But I am concerned that we may be seeking information from the Board of Water and Light that may be in some way confidential or classified. I don't know that. So out of an abundance of caution, those areas, you know, there's the FOIA exemption that I'm familiar with for emergency management and homeland security plans. You can tell me the board has posted their plan on their website, got that. I don't know if that's the only plan or not. So Mm -hmm. that's what I was referring to out of an abundance of caution. In general, you're planning to have open meetings, but you may have to close the door if you are dealing with confidential information. Or if there are, you know, I mean, again, I'm speculating a little bit, but what I was trying to do was think about what those potentials are areas might be. Mm-hmm. There may be some BWO employee that wants to talk to us as a whistleblower, for goodness sake. And if that's the case, I'm going to have to learn what, what, what the rules are on that. But there may be certain areas there. That's all I was trying to uh, suggest. Now, the makeup of the committee uh, seems to be a lot of names we recognize. Not, not a, it, n- n- nobody who just seemed to be an average consumer. Uh, why is that? Well, I'd point out they all are consumers right. of the Board of Water and Light. Uh, I, so I don't know what an average consumer is. Uh, I, besides trying to get some geographic diversity, I did want to get individuals that would be comfortable working through this sort of process. I, the demand that I am putting on ourselves is we will have this completed by March 31st. That's barely two months. We haven't even begun the fact-finding phase yet. I mean, here we are and late January with our first organizational meeting today. So I wanted individuals that would be, that would be comfortable with that process uh, and, and that would be able to work through that process pretty quickly. Were all the committee members drawn from people who uh, volunteered for it or did you recruit some? Oh, they all volunteered. I mean, they didn't all send me an email to lansingcrt at gmail.com. A couple were phone calls. I think one ended up being a phone call. That was from Larry Bass. Um, 
he was a strong supporter of the Michigan National Guard for many, many years, so I knew him from that. Uh, he had called me up and uh, said, what can I do? And I said, if you're interested, apply. And he sent me his, his resume and applied. But you didn't seek people? No. Okay. Okay. So what do you what do you really hope to accomplish with this? What's the end the end game? Well, that's a great question, Mickey. Thank you. I it seems to me it is up to the Board of Water and Light as said before for them to regain the confidence and trust of the community. But uh, we're calling ourselves a community review team for a specific reason. We are the representatives of the community. Uh, we are going to give specific recommendations to the mayor who is going to share them with the Port of Water and Light. I think that those recommendations, should they be followed, or, you know, I suppose if there is a recommendation that is beyond their ability to follow for some reason, you know, we're being too idealistic. The idea of bearing lines I just mentioned sure. may be extremely costly, is my understanding. But that may be a recommendation. But there will at least be that public debate on those. And by having that public discussion over our, our specific recommendations, that that will go a long way towards regaining their confidence. Our goal is just to come up with the specific recommendations to put Board of Water and Light in a better position so should there be another event, whatever type of event that is, natural or man-made, that they will be able to respond to that with alacrity and not with the response that we saw this last time. Does your group then have any responsibility for determining accountability? I mean, if this were a, a business, possibly in the military, and you had this kind of performance, people could be penalized for that. And there would be a process for looking at that, and you might get doc pay, you might get fired, you could any number of things. Will your organization be looking at that? I think the analogy of the military is a very apt one. Uh, in the military, what we would do is what we call an Article 15-6 investigation, where we would be the auditors, we would be the investigating of officers, and we would make a recommendation to that senior leader, some general officer or colonel, who would then make a decision about just that, what punishment should, if any, should happen. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see us doing. We're doing an investigation, we're making recommendations that will then be taken by the senior leadership, by by the mayor who appointed the commissioners and the commissioners who hired the general manager. It's for them to make that decision. So in a sense then, if those recommendations would probably go to the commissioners, the mayor would get them, but the commissioners are the governing, I certainly governing hope body so. for that. I certainly hope so and expect so. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about your experience uh, during the storm, General. Huh. Uh, you know, knew there was gonna be an ice storm. I mean, that was pretty, first of all, the news was very clear that we were going to have an ice storm. So we were stocked up, we're all, we're, we're all tucked in. Kids are home for the Christmas holiday. They're both <laughs> at that other school down the road in Ann Arbor, but they're home for the Christmas holiday. And uh, I woke up here in an explosion about 4 a.m. and of course, figured it was you know a tree or something and, and just rolled over and went. 4 a.m. Sunday morning? 4 a.m. Sunday morning, thank right. you, Mickey. About. 6 a.m. Sunday morning, my son uh, wakes me up and he says, Dad, I think you really got to take a look. We got a tree on fire. <laughs> so I go out in the backyard and there's two trees on fire uh, at either end of literally our, our back. Literally on fire. Literally on fire, right. Uh, so I watched them for a while to see if it would spread. And of course, with the continuing uh, sleet coming down, there wasn't a lot of spreading, but it was continuing to smoke and to burn. I mean, literally burning. Uh, and so uh, when there was a very strong, another strong outage, there was a, there was a primary line behind our house. And when that one sort of arced and sparked for the second mm -hmm. or third time, I called 911. The, the uh, East Lansing PD came out right away. They watched it do the same thing. 
But as I said before, we did not see Board of Water and Light out there. They did come out on uh, Christmas, mo uh, Christmas afternoon uh, and had power restored by the 26th. Uh, and they, I have nothing but high regard for the, the boots on the ground, sort of the utility first responders. They did an excellent job and they had good spirits the whole time, even though they were working 19 to 20 hours a day. I don't think it was the linemen that, were, that we'll be focusing on so much as somewhere above them. Mm -hmm. Are there some obvious things, for example, uh, I just saw recently that Consumers Energy started planning a week before the ice storm for how to deal with yeah. it. Uh, are, is that an obvious flaw? Are there other things that you just know in your gut they did wrong? Um, again, let me, rather than say as things I know they did wrong, let me just make some suggestions. Uh, prior to Katrina, the, the, neither FEMA nor the military would ever do sort of a, a pre-positioning uh, of equipment. Every disaster since, we pre-position equipment. We, meaning the federal government, mm -hmm. pre-positions equipment. Uh, that's been the standard across the emergency management community since at least Hurricane Katrina. Uh, there has been a number of after-action reports written after Hurricane Katrina about public and other utilities. Uh, after ice storms in uh, the Northeast United States, there have been after action reports written. This is not exactly new science. Uh, most of those utilities then rewrote their, their emergency plans as a result of either Katrina uh, or the, the major ice storms in around 2007, 2008. Uh, we also had the incident with the blackout in 2003. Uh, which involved the emergency management community, because remember I was Homeland Security Advisor for the state at the time, and we worked very closely with consumers in DTE. So the second thing I think would be uh, that relationship with the government entities and, and the major utilities. Again, that's been, uh, a, I think, a standard since at least the blackout in 2003. Uh, the idea of having to have a common operating picture so that all your senior leadership are looking at the exact same set of data and making the right decision, that idea has been around at least since uh, prior to 9-11. It's, the, the, it's been the standard in the military for, for quite some time. So there are a number of things that I will be looking for. Will you be talking to other utilities for their disaster plans? I mean, I'm thinking of the Connecticut power outages it seemed to be a couple of years ago right. and it was it was out for it sounded like here I mean it, it was a terrible problem it took weeks and weeks to yeah. get it sorted out so you would think that the utility whoever serves that would have a pretty sophisticated plan learning from them will that this be a reference that you'll be able to, to gather from yes. you know for this report one of the things that I requested and received from the from the mayor uh, mayor Bernero is that we agree on a mission statement and one of the things we specifically included in that, that mission statement is that we look at industry, utility industry best practices. Sure. Uh, so certainly I expect not only Connecticut, but I also recall New Hampshire and Vermont had similar issues. And I think, Mickey, that they have more publicly owned utilities in those states than Connecticut, as I recall. Again, off the top of my head, please don't hold, it, hold me to it. But I know that they have done both after action plans and uh, action, after action reports and revised plans in those areas. Well, as a result I lived, of those I lived in Vermont. It was Green Mountain Power yeah. there, and we had the same awful ice storms and yeah. the trees down. And yes, I would think they they learned from that. And it's you know, I, I think there's. I guess I'm still surprised that you wouldn't have them just as a matter of course. I mean, you see that they've had a problem. You say, well, send me a report, would you? And you know, but 
That's yeah. well, it seemed like now. there would be some sort of association that has oh, there is. standards. Oh, there is, yeah. And yeah. so will you be looking yeah. then at yes. whether... Yeah. Okay. There's a National Association of State Utilities Organization, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So will you be calling at these uh, hearings, uh, will you be calling uh, BWL officials like Peter Lark to talk about why, why if you, they were not complying uh, with the given standards, why they weren't? Well, I think the first thing I need to do is sort of information gathering, so I'll be asking them for a certain number of documents, including the transcripts of all their public hearings, which I understand that they've, they've kept. Uh, I will certainly have a, one of the things is I think we will be talking to officials and staff at BWL, and then there's a number of subject matter experts that we need to talk to as will well. Will you bring these in in front of the committee, or will committee members be going out individually? Well, I'm, I'm hoping we can do it in front of the committee and do it as a public hearing. To some degree, frankly, that may depend upon the subject matter experts' availability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be a lot easier if we could bring them before the sure. committee. We're running out of time, but just how do you, what do you think the biggest challenge? When you go home and go, I agreed to do this, man, oh man. What is your biggest biggest challenge? Well, I think um, it is, uh, I, I think that there, uh, that we just need to get to the substance. You know, we've been spending a little bit of time here on process, and, and uh, I understand why that's important, and, and mm -hmm. that's why I picked the members I did, but I'm just anxious to get to the substance of this, uh, of it. You know, that's what my area of expertise sure. was, and that's where I need to go. And I just ask for the public's patience over the next 60 days as we, as we sort of get into the substance of this. Uh, uh, certainly, we will have to have a series of public hearings on the recommendations. Uh, you know, we just said three or four things that seem obvious. Uh, the lack of uh, or the immediate invocation of, of mutual assistance agreements uh, would be another one. Uh, the, the lack of outage maps is one. Some of these are low-hanging fruit that I think that they'll address in, in their report, their internal report that'll come out around 15, 18 February. Uh, we're gonna go to the end of March and I think we're gonna well, review well, and their report Well, they've addressed some well. of these already, right. they claim. So, well, I mean, but we need to see that in a report sure. saying exactly how they're gonna do it. And if that's the case, that's great. We check the box and we move on to the next thing. We're not gonna reinvent the wheel or be redundant. Uh, we're mm -hmm. gonna, we're gonna, but we're gonna assure that they're looking at this holistically. All right, well, we are just about out of time. Mike McDaniel, thanks so much for being on City Pulse Newsmakers. Mickey Hurton, thanks for doing Thank this you. today. Thanks for being here. And I wanted to mention that uh, City Pulse is in the midst of its biennial readership survey. We really need to uh, hear from you. You can go to lansingcitypulse.com and fill that out. It helps us tremendously. Thanks for watching. We'll be back uh, next week with uh, Peter Spadafor, the new uh, uh, head of the Lansing Board of Education. Well, that's our show for tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week. I thank you for listening. And uh, on behalf of Andy Belaskovitz and myself, have a great evening. See you next week. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.